Good morning. We are continuing our series in the book of Exodus today, Exodus 3 through 4, verse 17. I'm going to be reading chapter 3, 1 through 14, and chapter 4, 1 through 13. If you're able, will you please stand for the reading of God's word as a sign of his authority over us? Chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jumping ahead to chapter 4, verse 1 through 13. Then Moses answered, But behold, They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. 
Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you would have been watching me just before I walked up here, you would have seen me uh, standing right here and then all of a sudden wildly running to the back where I had left my microphone, slapping it on my head and running back up here. And that is just a perfect microcosm, perfect picture of my week this week. That's where I'm at, folks. This is what you get on this Sunday. Sorry. Uh, it's been, a, it's been wide, quite a week. Uh, homecoming last night for two of my kids. First time we did that. Haven't got the report yet. I'm looking forward to it. Um, Wednesday, many of you guys came out to the members meeting. That was a big one, something we were working on for a long time. Important uh, clarifications and changes to the way that we do discipleship here at Christ Community. I was thankful for that meeting. But honestly, the thing that's made it quite a week is my precious wife, um, kind of a freak accident in our kitchen. She was just turning around, twisted her knee, and broke her leg, and probably tore some things in there. It just... This week has been turned on its head. I tell people it's been, we, we've been put into a blender. So I hope that gives you a little compassion for why I was going to walk up here without a mic and start talking to you. I, I just feel a little bit scattered coming to you right now. But this is what I was also thinking about as I was walking up here. You know, so this passage today actually gives me confidence and courage for, for moments like this where I'm scattered and kind of all over the place and I don't really have what it takes. This is honestly in the scheme of things, uh, obviously the way that I feel right now and the things even that transpired this week, there's some bigger things that happened, but in the scope of eternity, it's small. But the passage today that we're going to be in, Ephesians 3, addresses not only small, smaller situations, like maybe what's going on in my heart right now, but it addresses bigger questions for all of us Questions like, do I have what it takes? Am I enough? Or maybe it addresses doubts like, I don't have enough. I don't have what it takes. I can't follow God like I'm supposed to. Here's the message. God can use you. Yeah, you, right where you are in the life that he's given you. God can use you. Trust him. That's what we're going to see today. That's what we're going to um, hopefully be encouraged by today. And hopefully by God's sovereign grace, his power on display, it won't be too scattered. Let's, let's ask for his help. Lord, would you just put your great glory on display? Would you show us, cause us to behold wonderful things in your law? Lord, we, we want to see your glory We want to be mesmerized again about how great you are. We want to be brought to a place of worship, of bending our knees before the Holy One of Israel. I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you transform this moment into a holy moment. And as we behold your glory, would you set our hearts on fire with passion for you? Would you cause us to worship you? Would you purify our hearts before you? Would you set us apart? for your plans and purposes. 
Show us who you are. We want to see you. We want to behold you. Make yourself known to us, please. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're continuing a series through Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. If you have your little journal or your Bible, go ahead and flip it open to that. I'm going to reread verse 1 for us, get us kicked off. Just part of it. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. Little phrase, lot there. Moses went from, if you guys remember some of the previous sermons, Moses went from being a prince in Egypt uh, to being a shepherd in the desert. That's where he is right now. He wanted to help Israel um, to free them from Egypt's oppression. But while he was defending an Israelite, he killed an Egyptian oppressor. Then he got afraid when everybody heard and he ran for it. He ran to the desert. He's a fugitive. I think that's important to characterize him that way. He's a fugitive right now on the run. He was 40 when all that went down with the Egyptian and the running and the going to the desert. In verse 1, he's 80. 80 years old. 40 years shepherding. Running from his past. Living with his failures. And he's an old shepherd getting into those twilight years of life. I think by any estimation, if we were just looking at Moses, the man right there, we might be thinking, that guy's effectively done. There's not much left to do in life. Not that he's a bad guy per se, but there just isn't much more there. And it's at that precise moment that God chooses to say to him, Moses, you're ready to bring my people out of Egypt. That's the moment God chose. I had a quote from A.W. Tozer come to my inbox this week. It says this, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Moses came to the wilderness, running from his failure, hiding from his past, and God did not give up on him but prepared him for this time. So here's what I want you to see right here. We've talked a lot about wilderness. We've talked a lot about how God uses that to prepare us. But what I want you to see at this moment, I think what this passage is telling us right now, is God calls all of us, brothers and sisters, to participate in his plans, his purposes. Moses wrote Exodus. He wrote this book. So question, why do you think he would include this part of his story? Why would he include this particular episode? I think it's here to show us that no matter who you are, how bad your past is, what situation you find yourself in, that if if you have trusted in Christ, God wants you involved in what he is doing in the world. I think a lot of you guys know that. Sometimes it can be hard to believe that, but he actually wants you. There's no such thing as someone too old or too big of a failure, or too unimportant, or too unskilled. What God is doing is he's writing a grand story. It's a story about redemption and restoration. It's coming to fulfillment through the Lord Jesus Christ. A story where people are delivered out of darkness, out of death, and out of sin into eternal life. That is what is going on in the world right now. 
And that story we are seeing played out in the book of Exodus. In other words, we're seeing our story, the story that God has brought us into by faith in Jesus Christ. That is what is happening right in front of us in Exodus. Moses' story is our story in a lot of ways. He's going to bring his people to the promised land. That's where we're headed to. You, me, all of us, with all of our various backgrounds and weaknesses and shameful failures, we're called by God to participate in what he's doing. Don't take my word for it. Take 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says this, but you, you, brothers and sisters, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Why are we those things for him? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have been called to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. You've been brought in. You've been set apart for his work. It's an amazing thing that God would choose to display his glories to Egypt through a man. And it's an amazing thing that God continues, he chooses to display his glory through the men and women that are gathered in this room. The God of the universe has chosen you as an instrument to display his glory to the world with all your failures, weaknesses, shame. Wildernesses prepare us for moments like this. And we talked about this last week, but I just want to remind you how, how it does. These moments of darkness and difficulty, it, it does it by setting our posture, not like this, not erect and upright, sturdy and strong. That's not what the wilderness does. The wilderness brings us here, leaning over, dependent, leaning on our lover's arm, on our beloved's arm. That's what's happened to Moses. And that's really where this chapter goes now, where this next section of scripture goes. It's an invitation to lean, to lean on God, the God who's going to make himself known right here to Moses and right now through his word to us. This is what builds confidence in people to be part of God's purposes, not looking within, but looking to him, leaning not standing in your own strength, but leaning on our beloved. That's what God wants to use this section for. God wants to use you, brother or sister, in his work in the world, no matter what you've got going on in your life, no matter how small or insignificant or unskilled you may feel. The question is, will you trust him? Will you lean on him? So let's, let's, see, let's see that. Okay, so look at verse, verse 2. Here's what we're going to see first. We're going to see that God, again, what we're going to see is we're going to see God. God's going to show us who he is. And in seeing him, it's going to bring great confidence to our lives. That's what I'm praying happens. So here's what we're going to see about God. First, that he is completely self-existent. Verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared, so I'm in chapter 3, verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. This is a very strange thing. This is an amazing thing. You know this naturally. 
all of life depends on something else for its uh, for its nourishment or for its fu- for its fuel. Right? We need food. Cars need gas. Plants need water and sun. This fire that Moses sees burning on the bush, it did not need fuel. It wasn't consuming the bush. It needed no external fuel in order to make it continue to combust. It was a flame nourished by its own life, a living flame. The fire's power came from within it. Does that make sense? You follow with me? In the fire, God is displaying something about himself for Moses and for all of us. Essentially, God's saying this. I depend on nothing. I need nothing. I am self-existent. I have no beginning and no end. There was no beginning or end to that flame. It just existed. And you depend on me. I depend on no one. You need me like you need water or air or food. And I, God, need nothing. The essence of the revelation of God, so say the theologians, is that he is the living God, a self-existent, self-maintaining, self-sufficient reality that draws nothing from outside of himself. Then God tells Moses in verse 5, take off your shoes because you're standing in a holy place. God, in his totally unique self-existence, all of life is dependent on him, is holy. Holy means that he is separate. He belongs really to a distinct, distinct sphere with all its own distinct characteristics. There's only one. Think about it like this. Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they thought that they could stay in the garden, right? They hid. They thought, okay, if we just hide ourselves, it'll take care of our problem. That didn't work. They couldn't stay there. Their disregard for God, their their disobedience of his command meant that they were no longer holy. To be unholy in God's holy presence was dangerous. They were cast out. I read a quote this week. said this, Unless we have been on our knees because of the holiness of God, we have not begun the Christian life. That's an overstatement. Here's what they're trying to communicate. The point is that God is so great in his complete self-existence, in his utter separateness as a holy God, totally pure, totally righteous, totally full of power and goodness to the uttermost, that it, it ought to drive us to our knees to be in his presence. And that's what we see happening in Scripture. When people come in, in Scripture into the presence of God, they become undone on their faces. And Moses hides his face from God. Now, God's solution for Moses' unholiness with shoes. Take off your shoes. What, what difference does that make between holy and unholy? Think about that. I mean, why, why would it matter whether or not you got dirty shoes, Moses? This is the way that God provided in that moment. Moses was welcome there. 
And I think, um, you know, it's, these moments are actually not for us to parse out exactly why that particular provision, but rather to look upon the provision that God has made and rejoice. I think it's that way with Jesus, right? How is it that Jesus' blood covers all of our sins? I think there's a lot of reasons why we can rejoice in that. We might marvel at that. But it's also just a moment to sit back and realize, wow, it's enough. It's enough to make us holy, to allow us to enter into the presence of the Holy One of Israel. Jesus has made that way. God identifies himself to Moses then in verse 6. The name that Moses would know, the God of his father and then his forefathers, that he sees what's been happening and he's decided to come down. He's condescended down to our level from that high place of self-existence, self-sufficiency, needing nothing, holiness, pure, righteous, and good. He has come down to be part of our suffering and to deliver. And that's truly one of the most amazing realities of our God. Though he's transcendently great, he has drawn near to us. Why did he do that? Not because he needed to, but simply because of who he is. He came to rescue us from the tyranny, not of Egypt, but of sin and death, and to bring us into the promised land of eternal life through Christ. God has come down. He has condescended. And one day after Moses, God would actually become man and dwell among us. A holy, self-existent God, dependent on no one else who comes low to bring his people high. It's amazing. We might think that if God comes down, if God sees and then chooses to deliver, that he'd save the people himself. That's what it says there in that passage. It says that he came down, I've come down to see them. But that is not what God chooses to do. He does not choose to save them himself. He has another plan. Verse 10, God sends Moses. Come, I will send you. That's what he says. And when Jesus came and gave his life for the world, God did not have Jesus go and preach the gospel to everybody. I promise you he's a better preacher than me and any of us. He could have done that. But rather, he sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts. He equipped us and sent us to the world. Essentially, God's saying to us the same thing. Come, I'll send you. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So there are a lot of reasons that we can come up with for why we might not live for God's purposes in the world, for why we wouldn't, why we wouldn't live as his sent people. But the truth is, he has sent us. God has sent Moses, and you are a sent person. Now, I know, because if you're like me at least, I know that we make a lot of excuses for why we feel like we're not qualified as a sent person, or why we shouldn't go, or why we don't go. And Moses, in this passage, is about to make five different excuses. That's really the structure for the rest of this passage, from chapter 3, verse 11, all the way to the end of 4.17. There's going to be five distinct excuses that God makes before, I'm sorry, that Moses makes before God. Let's see if we resonate with any of these excuses. So you're going to need to look at your Bibles. I intended to put them up here on a slide. Guess what? Newsflash. I forgot. Yeah, that's my theme these days. Sorry. 
Uh, so you're gonna need to pay really close attention, okay? So here's the first one, first excuse, chapter 3, verse 11. You can reread it with me. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Verse 13, chapter 3. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? What shall I say? Chapter 4, verse 1. But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Chapter 4, verse 10. Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent. Chapter 4, verse 13. Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Moses has changed. He is not the guy that fought the Egyptian in Egypt. Before, he was bold. He was brash. He was sure. God had put something into his heart, and he was going to lead those people out. Here, he's insecure. I think we can all resonate with that to some degree. He thought that he had what it took to free Israel 40 years ago. Now, he knows he doesn't. He doesn't have what it takes. For clarity, let me just try to distill those different excuses down for us, okay? So back, chapter 3, verse 11. Here's what Moses is saying. I am not the person you need. He's unfit for the task. Chapter 3, verse 13. I do not have the necessary gift. I don't have the knowledge of God. The reason I'm bringing clarity to these, by the way, is maybe you can resonate with this. Maybe you use this as an excuse for why you're not living for the purposes of God. Chapter 4, verse 1. Moses is saying, I do not have the required effectiveness they won't listen. Chapter 4, verse 10. I do not have the necessary gift. I'm not eloquent. Chapter 4, verse 13. I am not the person you need. He's unwilling, straight up unwilling to go. Now, here's a bit of a curveball for you. When I read this, it actually encourages me. Moses is God's chosen man. This Moses. Not the brash, bold, big guns coming out firing version of Moses. This version of Moses. He's insecure. Uncertain. Unworthy. Unprepared. Really un-everything. You know what this means? God uses people like me. What, God, what was God's solution for Moses' insecurity? And really what I'm asking is, um, what is God's solution for our insecurity that launches us to be sent people God made us to be? Look at the first objection that Moses, is make, that Moses makes, verses 11 and 12. I'm going to read those verses again. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel the children of Israel out of Egypt? And then God responds, "But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship on this mountain." Moses is saying to God, "God, I'm a nobody. I am unfit for the task." 
How would you respond if somebody said that to you? I'm a nobody. I can't do, I'm unfit to do what you asked me to do. Maybe we'd say, oh, come on now, sure you can. Come on, buck up, buttercup. Let's get going. Maybe sketch out some picture of hope. Maybe it's a false hope. Maybe you say, hey, don't, don't worry about your insecurity. You just, you just got to go. got to keep going. Brush it off. Don't acknowledge it. How does God respond? God accepts Moses' self-assessment. He doesn't tell him he's wrong. But God promises his presence. I will be with you. And then this is the pattern that we see. God tells Moses to go. And then Moses tells God, I can't. Therefore, I won't. But God is bringing Moses to the point where he can say, where Moses can say, I can't. But you can. Therefore, I will. What was the Lord's solution to Moses' insecurity? Moses, you're actually a really great guy. No. Moses, you've got a great skill set. You just got to tap into it. No. Again and again, God is saying to Moses, are you taking me into account? Where are your eyes fixed? The Lord did not take away Moses' nervousness or his weakness. He did not give him a sudden bolt of skills. He did not give him a sudden lightning bolt of boldness. He called Moses to trust him to come out of the wilderness leaning on his beloved's arm. So who is he? Who is God? Who is Moses called to lean on here? Who is going with him? Who is it that Moses is called to trust? He is, and I'm just going to sketch these out real quick, verses 14 and 15, he is the God of self-revelation. Throughout the Bible, God makes himself known. He did that with Moses here, and he's doing it for us right now through his word. Verse 16, he is the changeless and carrying God. Across long spans of time, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all the way to us today, he does not change. His promises remain. He cares. He knows he came down to see. He cares about the wrongs that are done to you too to the things that are going on in your life. And he's going to do something about that, just like he did for Egypt, just like he did for his people in Egypt. Verse 17, he's the promise-keeping God. He would keep his promises to Abraham to bring them into a good land. He'll keep his promises to you too. He is the God of knowledge and patience. That's verses 18 and 19. The Lord knew how everyone would react already. And he is patient in dealing with them, with us. There are many chances to change and repent. Number five, he is the God of power and sufficient resources. That's verse 20. He has what it'll take to accomplish his purposes. He has the power to save, the power to work through us. 
And then the last one, he's the God of victory and transformation. That's verses 21 and 22. Even the hearts of the people are under his divine providential sway. He controls them. Even to the point that they're going to hand you jewelry on the way out the door. In verse 14 of this chapter, very significant. God identifies himself as I am. Tell Israel, I am sent you. This is the holy name of God. Ancient Jews would not even dare utter this word on their lips. They used a different name for God. It was too holy. We don't exactly know how to translate this name from the Hebrew. There are no vowels in the Hebrew language, so you kind of have to make an educated guess. But most likely it would be translated to the word Yahweh. Maybe you've heard that word. Anytime you see the word Lord, all caps in your Bible, like you do here in verse 14, that's the name Yahweh. I am. Moses, in the context of God revealing this name, he doubts everything. He doubts everything that's going on. He doesn't have what it takes. And God says, I will be with you. I am with you. The link between verse 12, where God says, I will be with you, and verse 14, where God says, I am who I am, is clear in the Hebrew. God is promising that the fullness of his presence and the fullness of his power will be with Moses. The fullness of his presence, that is, to comfort, guide, care, give grace. And the fullness of his power. What I want to have happen will happen. I will succeed. The authority to do so. So God's solution, what we're looking at here, God's solution to Moses' insecurity is look at me. I will be with you. I am more than enough for you. So, let's bring this home to us. What area of your life do you feel like is just impossible? That you just don't have what it takes to do what God has called you to do? Think about it for a second. Maybe there's something at work or at school. Maybe it's someone that just feels impossible. Maybe it just feels impossible there to be a Christian, to do what God wants me to do. I just can't do it. I can't do it. What if today you took a moment, maybe even right now, and said to God, God, I, we're echoing the words of Moses here. God, I can't do it, but you are with me, so I will. Maybe stuff at home is just too much. Loving, caring, washing, cleaning, folding, whatever. You just reached the breaking point. You don't know what to do with the kids. You don't know with your spouse. I invite you to take a moment even right now, and say to God, God, I can't do it, but you are with me, so I will. This portion of scripture, the Bible, God speaking to us right now, is an invitation. It's an invitation to you and to me to be part of what God's purposes are for the world by 
looking to him, the living, self-existent fire, the great I am, the one who hears and sees, remembers, knows, provides. Look to him. And then God gives Moses, he takes it from his word, God gives him his word, and then gives him something tangible. Three signs, signs and wonders, physical reminders. It's the show and tell portion of our sermon. These are supposed to provoke awe, wonder, and they're meant to teach us something. That's the sign and the wonder. The sign points to something, the wonder provokes awe. Three things, staff, a leprous hand, and the Nile. And they might seem really insignificant, like, ooh, cool, they're like tools in the bat, bat belt or whatever, like the battering or something, and ooh, I want to use my cable cord or whatever. That's not what it is. These have purposes. God, like I said, he revealed himself through his word, and now he's showing something physical. What are, what's God doing right here? Why these three things? Well, let's talk about the serpent. The, serpent. the staff that turns into a serpent is a direct shot at the king. If you know your Egyptian history, you know that the king, the pharaoh, would always wear a serpent on the crown. Leprosy was considered uncurable, impossible. So it was displaying something about God's sovereignty, his power. And the Nile was life. Every year the the Nile would flood and it would bring an enormous amount of rich, nutrient-rich soil to the land around the Nile River, enabling them to grow all of their crops. So really they viewed the Nile as... Uh, a time when it flooded especially and afterwards is a time of renewal of rebirth of cleansing of provision they worshiped it so to turn that nile to blood that was a threat on life itself but why has god given us these signs for moses and for us to see obviously demonstrating something about himself but let's talk about moses's staff as we're closing up here it was his shepherding stick right? He walked with it. You kind of know what it is, about a head height, maybe. Let's just be honest about it. It is a dead piece of wood. Maybe he used it to whack a naughty sheep, guide a sheep, kind of leaned on it when he needed to rest. And that staff was going to be used by Moses to overcome Pharaoh's officials, to cause plagues to divide the Red Sea and to bring water from the rock. What changed? How did it go from dead stick to water producer? Look ahead just real briefly. Chapter 4 verse 20 says this. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. What changed from it being Moses' shepherding staff to the staff of God is what Francis Schaeffer said. The staff of Moses had to become the staff of God. And how did that happen? It was consecrated, given over to God's use. Brothers and sisters, God can use a dead stick of wood like that to divide the Red Sea. And if he can use a dead stick of wood like that, how much more can he use us? 
God calls all of us to move from being the me of me to the me of God. To be consecrated to the Lord's use. And the leprosy? Those other two signs were actually outside of Moses' body. This was his own body. This is a reminder. He didn't have what it took to lead Israel out. He had a contagion within, a disease within himself. But the Lord would use Moses' own hand, his own body, his own person, as a demonstration of renewal and restoration. In a sense, Moses' hand is Moses the man. The old Moses had to become the new Moses, not imprisoned by what he'd been, but but in the power of God, something new, a new creation. God's showing us something through these signs for us. We have to become the me of God. How does that happen? How do we move from, I can't, therefore I won't, to, I can't, but you are with me, so I will. How do we become the me of God? You look to him. You have faith in the self-existent, holy fire, the great I am, who sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to take away the the contagion, the disease that we all have, the leprosy of our hearts, our own sin to himself and die in our place so that we could enter the promised land so that we would be delivered to his land and so that we could lead others in a long train behind us toward him. If you have trusted in Christ, I want you to believe this today. If you have trusted in Jesus, you are in the grip of the Almighty. You are no longer the me of me. You are the me of God, ready to be used by him consecrated for his work right where you are no matter how small you view yourself no matter how dead like a dead stick of wood you view yourself no matter how small a place you might find yourself this sermon is actually not about you being sent someplace else this sermon is you are already sent you are in the hand of God and look to him Instead of our own insecure selves. You won't find what you need within. You find what you need in Him. So look to Him. Consider Him. Meditate on Him. You are God's woman. You are God's man. Set apart for His use. God has called you. He has sent you. Right where you are. Right who you are. Right now. You are a man or woman of God. Set apart for His glorious work of delivering and redeeming and restoring the world. Praise God for that. Lord, we thank you. Send us your people. We are so thankful that you have sent us your people. And I pray that as we leave this place today, just as we sing a couple more songs and as we take communion together, that there would be a sending effect to our hearts where we are looking to you empowered and confident, not in ourselves necessarily, not in ourselves but in you. Give us eyes to behold your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.